White Rocket Entertainment. White Rocket Entertainment, podcast number 729. 10, 9, 8, 7, ignition sequence started. All engines are started. We have ignition. 2, 1, 0. We have a liftoff. We have a liftoff and it's lighting up the area. It's just like daylight here at Kennedy Space Center. The Saturn V is moving off the path. It is now clear to the top. Welcome to the White Rocket Podcast, brought to you by White Rocket Entertainment in association with all of our great supporters via Patreon.com. I am your host, Van Allen Plexico, and in this episode, we're going to be covering the greatest music of what I consider the greatest music year ever, 1983. And I am joined for this musical odyssey across just such a great landscape of tunes by Jason Colvin of the Surely You Can't Be Serious podcast. How you doing, Jason? I'm good, man. How you doing tonight? I'm so glad to have you aboard again. We did the Ready Player One show and with David, too, in just a second. A while back, we did two Ready Player One shows. And they were very popular, very successful. And I'm glad to have you back aboard. And I love your podcast, by the way. You and Dee do an awesome, awesome show. Thank you, buddy. Appreciate that. Also joined by my longtime occasional co-host, David Wright. David is an author and a YouTuber. How are you doing tonight, David? I'm doing pretty good. Uh, it's good to join you once again and uh, be here with Jason. When you said you wanted to talk best songs of 1983, I said we can't do that without Jason Coleman. We've got <laughs> oh, yeah. to bring him in. If he found out we did it without him, he'd be mad. So uh, happy happy to be here. I uh I am an author. Galahad's Doom is my fantasy series. You can go to galahadsdoom.com and find out all about it. I host the American Soccer Quick Kicks YouTube channel, which is gaining a little traction, where I talk all about the U.S. men's national team and a little bit about Major League Soccer and all the various competitions they're in. But I do it for a casual audience or a, a, a newbie audience who maybe wants to get into the sport a little bit more but is confused by the landscape of it all. And uh, so I just try to walk you through. It's kind of a 101 for that. And I just have fun talking about it. And I am a lover of 1980s pop culture. And uh, anytime you want to talk 80s pop culture, especially music from this era, I am all about it. I am on Spotify as Def Dave. If you go there, you will find my 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 comprehensive 80s playlist that's in chronological order uh, by by the date of their peak chart position. So that's a lot of fun. If you you just pick a part of that playlist and just immerse yourself, recreate that year from the eighties, it's pretty it's pretty fun. So I am thrilled to death be being on this conversation. And we're thrilled to have you both. So let us see. Um I have the music standing by, so we'll have a little bit in the background when we talk about our songs. The format we're gonna do is we're going to take turns going down our list. We'll all do our number five. Then we'll all do our number four. We'll all do our number three. We'll all do our number two. Throw in some honorable mentions there and talk about them. And then we'll say what we thought the number one song of that year was. Now, one really only one ground rule that I had is that there really shouldn't be any ground rules. And in other words, what I mean is, you know, does a, does a song count if the album came out that year? Or what if it charted the next year? Or... 
how do you what you do count it? And I my answer was anything is fair game if you can make a somewhat coherent logical argument for why it should be included that year. Because why take away the fun just to be sticklers for some random definition? So this is really like our five favorite songs. Any way we could get them into that year, right? And so here we go. And um, we're also going to look at the top five albums of those years and a couple of honorable mentions for those two. All right. I'm excited. And without further ado, I say we get on into it. Let's kick this thing off. I'm going to go Jason first, then David, and then me. So, Jason, I need, and, and again, feel free to like tease us a little bit, see if we can figure out what it is, although I have to admit I do have it in front of me, so you're kind of making David be the one to do it and vice versa. <laughs> but uh, I had to have them in advance to be able to put the sound together in the background, but here we go. So, Jason, tell us, uh, get us, lead in with uh, your number five from 1983. Okay, my number five from 1983 was released January 2nd of 1983, hit number one in March of 1983 so that's like a rocket man and this most people can actually pinpoint on the calendar when they first heard this song because they saw a dance move that blew their freaking mind this song is michael jackson's billy jean yeah oh there it is too yeah that bass line and him dancing on the colored square squares on the ground oh, yeah. that really uh, the made it fantastic you know he wrote this song about a stalker who claimed that he had fathered one of her twins <laughs> <laughs> well i always thought that that's what the lyrics sounded like they were saying was was this not my baby you know basically and i wasn't always sure but Okay. Chris Jones but, loves telling well, that see, story. So. Not, not only that, but he, she continued to stalk him so much that eventually he got a letter from her that included um, a picture of a gun and told him to kill himself on a certain day at a certain time, and she would be doing the same with their child and herself so they could oh, all wow. reunite in the afterlife. She eventually got put in a psychiatric. Hospital. I hope so, and I hope the child. <laughs> so, uh, 1983 was Michael Jackson's year. He that was the year he just absolutely took over the world. Yeah, no. He really choice. could make a top five just from Thriller. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. There's no question, no question about it. And I'll have more to say about this song later. I, I have a feeling this one's coming up. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm ret- I'm restraining now. All right. Well, then let's go on to David's number five. Number five. Okay, so this song was a hit single off of a concept album that was basically telling the story of a one Robert Oren Charles Kilroy who was in prison for rock and roll thanks to the moral majority of music or something like that. Peaked, uh, Peaked at number three in April of 1983. It is... The only song from Sticks that I ever listened to, Mr. <laughs> Roboto. The only song from Sticks. What about "Come Sail Away"? And uh... I, you know what? That's on my '70s playlist. I, yeah. I don't, I don't, uh, I don't hate it, but, uh, but yeah, Mr. Roboto captured my imagination. I was 12 years old in 1983. That's about a 
brain by IBM and you know and the, the robot <laughs> voice for Domi Arigato. I was oh, yeah. I was all about it. I was uh, I, I I went a long time without listening to this song, and then when I was making my '80s playlist, I kind of rediscovered it, fell in love with it all over again. So uh, it's a lot of fun. It was number three, Jason, for two weeks in April of '83. April of '83. Can you name the two songs that kept it out of the number one spot? Oh. How about Rosanna by Toto? That's a good Ooh. guess. Oh, wow. And Eye of the Tiger. So those, you're 0 for 2. So that's pretty darn that's, good guesses, though. <laughs> I wouldn't have come up with those, man. With, with Mr. Roboto at number three, number two was Come On Eileen. Nice. And number one was Billie Jean. Wow. Oh, there we go. Okay. I've heard till... Billie Jean's going to block... Oh, and then it got leapfrogged by Beat It, so it never made it. Oh, it, yeah. it got passed over, so then it started falling down the charts after that. Somebody once said Styx is a band, kind of like Rush, that has a huge fan base that loves them, but the critics never did. You know what I mean? Both, both Rush and Styx kind of like had to do their... They did their thing to the masses, but they never were hailed as, you know, geniuses in their day, really. And it's funny because this whole concept album sounds to me almost like something that could have spun out of uh, Rush's 2112. They're both kind of futuristic, semi-apocalyptic stories, you know. Got it. And then you can just roll that into uh, uh, Operation Mindcrime, Queensryche. Same thing. Oh, that's great. There you go. I doubt it goes into a novel. I was a big fan of the evolution of sticks that eventually became Damn Yankees. So. Oh yeah, that's right. Damn Yankees with Tommy Shaw in the early nineties. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And the bass player from another band I can't think of, uh, but yeah, I remember. Uh, Jack Blades from Night Ranger. Yeah. And that Ted was Nugent. It. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And yep. Ted Nugent. Less said about him, the better, but okay. Uh, <laughs> all right. So there's number five for Jason. Number five for David. And now. My, this is interesting, guys, because I think in some ways my top songs in some ways are sappier than you guys and in some ways harder rocking than you guys, just depending. I'm a little more all over the map a little bit. I And, and it's funny because my taste in, in 83 stuff really, I think, came from Friday Night Videos. We didn't have MTV. We didn't have cable yet. We never had cable. We didn't have a satellite dish yet. So the only way I was seeing popular, I was, you know, I hear you on the local radio, but Birmingham radio was notoriously mediocre in the 80s. And so, um, like, there was one station that supposedly played rock, but it was always like Charday or something. You'd wake up, they'd play Charday, and you'd fall back asleep again, you know. Um, <laughs> whereas, so we had Friday Night Videos, and that I love Friday Night Videos because it was always a competition. You'd have Def Leppard, you'd have ZZ Top, you'd have a bunch of bands like that on there, Michael Jackson, whatever. And so one of the bands that popped up a lot in 1983, I remember hearing them on the, um, uh, I got to find it on here. Aha. I remember hearing them on the radio in the mornings a good bit on the way to school uh, when I would be riding with my brother and maybe my dad. And this was right before I got a driver's license. And... It's the kickoff song on one of their biggest albums, probably their second biggest album. And I, I don't even know how to... Oh, oh, and it has... Pop, you may have th- said this before, Jason, I think. It has possibly the worst video of all time. Okay. Because they just went down to the docks and pretended to play their <laughs> instruments. Uh-huh, yes. <laughs> I got uh, it. <laughs> there it is. 
It is Journey. Separate ways, worlds apart. I played this album to. I had the record album, and I probably, and then I had the cassette, and I probably played it to death back that year. The whole first side, right? Second side, eh, not so great. But the whole first side of this album is fantastic. All, I think, in fact, every song I think was a, or at least almost all of them were singles. And it's hard to choose some of them, but this is the one I felt like was probably the the biggest one for me. So, separate ways, worlds apart by Journey. All right. You're right. That first album, The Frontiers. I mean, yeah, yeah. Center of My Love, Chain Reaction, Faithfully. Oh yeah. Bangers. Every bit of it. Yeah. And the live version of Center of My Love is so good as well that they use in the video. But um, this is the one I decided to go with. So. All right, let me fade Steve on out here and let's scroll back up to the top. We got to get to number four. So, Jason, what is your number four song? Okay, so this song has lead vocals by Jill Jones, Lisa Coleman, Des Dickerson, and of course, the lead singer that we all know. This was released in 1982, re released in 1983, only reached number 12 on the chart, and then it it blew out the speakers come the year 1999. I wonder what it could be. (laughs) This is 1999 by Prince. Oh, we get the opening. We can make it through this gang. If we all just are patient. (laughs) Prince, you can be so weird sometimes, honestly. Oh, there it goes. It's cranking up. Quite an album. And um, the song scared scared me. Peak, but, yeah. This song scared me. It was it was kind of scary. That's an apocalyptic song. There's people yep. running everywhere and screaming, and the sky's purple, and uh, Bill a lion uh, in his pocket. Oh, <laughs> hey, he's ready to roar. <laughs> what I hear. So, uh, Billboard. Uh, Billboard Magazine's review said that the apocalypse never sounded this danceable before. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's probably fair. Um, And it's arguable if it was the biggest song on this album. I mean, it's really kind of between it and Little Red Corvette, right? A lot of people would say Little Red Corvette. You know. No, I I probably like this one better. And Little Red Corvette never had a second go of life because it was named after a particular year right plus i like how the cover of this album looks like a funk version of space 1999 <laughs> nice but nice. here's the one thing i always notice about this album cover i guarantee if you look at the cover i guarantee you he swapped out the one and the eye because the the one in 1999 is an eye and the eye in prince is a one which seems like something he would do, right? Oh, yeah. And he Swap always uses the letters and numbers. Yeah. yeah. All right. Good I remember one. riding the bus to school going, I'll be 27 in the year 2000. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like, I'll never get here. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I was the same way, thinking about that, thinking about the year, for sure. All right. That was number four from Jason. Number four from David. Okay. So I'm probably not going to name this song right away because I'm – because I know that it's coming up later, but I just want to—I want to set the context a little bit. I, I, I meant to do this at the, the top. 1983, Van. If I'm not mistaken, you were 15, right? And freshman in high school, I guess. Yes. 
Yeah, freshman okay. going into sophomore year in high school, yeah. So you were 15. I was 12, and Jason was turned turn 10 that year. Mm-hmm. So that affects our choices a little bit. So um, sure. it's, uh, I would say keep that context in mind. But also, uh, anybody who knows me knows that uh, my musical taste took a 180 in the summer of 1985. I just became obsessed with rap music after that. But this era right here, pre-85, okay, from 82 to eight through at the end of 84, this was my golden age of pop radio. I was one of millions listening to Casey Kasem faithfully every single Sunday, recording it, uh, you know, making sure I knew what the top 10 were before I got to school Monday. Um, so the all of these songs from these years right here, um, just bring back all kinds of wonderful memories. So the number number four on my list is one we'll talk about later. Okay. But I'll just mention that since 2019, it has been playing constantly on loop in the middle of an African desert by a solar powered player. And it will probably never quit playing. I got it. I'm ready. I got it. And we will be talking about that later. So so we'll just put a pause on my number four. Let's bring it up later. (laughs) We'll just slide it. We'll just slide it right on back down again. All right. And then I almost forgot to turn the audio up a minute ago. That's why uh, that song was late coming in. Now we're up to my number four. And um, it's not going to be the last time that you uh, hear these guys, gentlemen. Uh, it will not be the last time you hear them. But uh, talking about a band from Sheffield, England, who um, who who I just discovered by by reading. I just recently read K.K. Downing, the guitarist of Judas Priest, his basically autobiography, which I never thought I would be saying. I just read the autobiography of one of the guitar players of Judas Priest, but it was really good. And in it, he talks about how. Judas Priest and this band and another band, I think, would get together because they like to play tennis, they like to play golf, and so and soccer. And so they'd play all kind of sports together, which is interesting, right? And so uh, I think they even own a team there now. So this is my second favorite from this band in 1983, but my number four overall uh, because of Friday Night Videos is where I first saw it and where I first learned about this band. There they come. This was like the Friday Night Videos champion public vote winner, like weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks. And it finally, if I recall correctly, got dethroned by ZZ Top's either Sharp Dressed Man or Legs. I don't remember which one it was. But it was between the two of them for like two months. And of course, this is fooling. It's a great song, man. Yeah. And it's funny because for the longest time listening to it too, I would always hear them saying, uh, is, is anybody out there? Does anybody care? Does anybody wonder? Here it goes. Is anybody out there? Anyone, anyone at all? Does anybody wonder? Anybody? That's just a great chorus. Yeah. Let's just listen for a second. <laughs> if you're really there, I won't equal really time for my picks. <laughs> <laughs> Here it is. 
Okay, so that part right there, I always thought he said, is anybody there? But he's saying, because baby, I'm not. Right? Because it doesn't make any sense for him to say foolin' after saying, is anybody there? But if he says, right. but baby, I'm not, he says foolin'. Okay. All right, so we'll slide that one on out. Oh, definitely. Joe Elliott has massive white pants in that video. <laughs> and the, the British flag. I don't know if he wore it on that one, but he wears that British flag shirt. He didn't wear you, it on that one, but do you know why he, he does wore pick the, up a giant Excalibur sword? Oh, that's right. God, you love the, you gotta love a those giant sword, man. The sword and sorcery videos of heavy metal in the eighties are <laughs> just can't be beat. Do you know why uh, Elliot and um, and Rick Allen wore British flags all the time in those videos and on for Pyromania? It's because they had gotten much bigger in the United States than they ever were in Britain. And they and the British, <clears throat> the British press were saying they were really American. They weren't really British because they only came over here and made all their money and everything over here. And they wanted to say, "Look, we're British. We're still British, right?" And they were trying to. That happened to all the heavy metal bands. All the heavy metal bands were bigger here than they were over there, pretty much. It happened over and over and over. All right, so that was my number four, Jason. We're up to you for number three. Number three. Okay, so I, I don't know if you guys even know this or not. Dave, you probably know this, but I grew up in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And Tulsa, Oklahoma was the pilot market for MTV. Whoa. Like, literally, we were the first people to get MTV. So we would see those campaigns. They're like, I want my MTV. I want my MTV. Well, we had our MTV. <laughs> so I didn't even understand what that what, – what were they trying to do? Like, that was so confusing to me. So it definitely influenced my, my musical taste, right? And so this band at number three was huge on MTV and really not anywhere else that you didn't have MTV, okay? So the members of this band said, our video looks like, quote, Indiana Jones trying to get laid, <laughs> okay? <laughs> this song was released in the UK in 1982, released later in the US in 1983, reached number three on the charts in March of 83. And you have a song about Little Red Riding Hood and female orgasms at the end of the song <laughs> as it's trailing out. This, of course, is Hungry Like the Wolf by it's, it's probably my favorite Duran Duran song. And I mean, to be fair, so catchy, man. it's just pop gold. I, I think Seven the Ragged Tiger is a better overall album, but I like this song probably the best. David, thoughts? If you've ever seen Hot Dog the movie. So the, I, I like all of Duran Duran's major hits, all the ones that everybody would recognize. Uh, this song is definitely, uh, definitely a banger. Love it. Uh, I'm trying not to laugh because I know Jason just shared with us some knowledge that he hasn't held for very long. He's just figured this song out recently. <laughs> uh, no, his his show has uh, has covered Duran Duran, and it's actually one of the, the best episodes they've ever done. I encourage everybody to go check that out. Good stuff. Uh, thanks, right. man. And, as, and you know, they by the just... way, that's Nick Rhodes's girlfriend at the very beginning of the song. They loved her laugh, and they just dropped that in right there at the beginning. Nice. I out. love when those things happen. Yeah. Half yeah, the, the people the, all I know, their songs, all their best songs just make you want to cut loose, sing at the top of your lungs. Half the people I know were at their concert about a week ago in Atlanta. Yeah. My Facebook and Twitter was blowing show. up with it. Yeah. 
so yeah, they, many they've continued to put out albums on a regular basis. They've never, they've never really quit. Yeah. Yeah. No, they had a big show a few days yes. ago. Yeah. And everybody was there. A lot of these bands, they go, you know, a long time between albums and they get back together and they start touring again. But Duran Duran apparently has never, never stopped. Never stopped. I never thought they were a great live band. I guess they probably put on a good show, but they're just, they're, their music is so studio centric to me that it seems well, like they'd be, yeah. you know, they're better on the album. But I mean, th- their sound of synth pop is just, you know, iconic of the 80s. It re- kind of, oh, yeah. It can kind of represent the entire decade. No doubt. No doubt about it. All right, number three for you, David. Okay, so this song hit number one in the middle of December of 1982. It stayed at the top for four weeks. So it was the number one song as 1983 arrived. Okay, Mm. I will tell you that you might think this song is about a woman, but it's actually, according to the writers, about New York City. It features on the track a musician named G.E. Smith, who would later join Saturday Night Live's band. Yep. And it was pre- preceded at number one by the song Mickey. And after its four week stay, it would be knocked off the perch by Down Under. That song is Maneater by Hall and Oates. Oh. I love. Maneater. I have a soft spot for this song. Probably not. That just that smooth bass line, kind of, kind of like a Supreme style Motown bass oh, line. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's just kind of slinky. The the, uh, the video, of course, had the the, the Black Panther in it, the le- Black Leopard, whatever it was in it. Yeah. Look, 1983. I disco- I discovered the Maneater <laughs> video. Beastmaster the movie yes. and Black Panther the comic book character like all at the same time right it was like a triple whammy of Black Panthers and Jungle Cats and so uh, I just thought Black Panthers were the coolest animal in the world and uh, there was no way that 12 year old David was not going to love Maneater especially after seeing that video so David went and joined the Black Panthers at that point so he could just make it a clean sweep <laughs> that's great this, uh, let me see. I'm a big I'm a big uh, Hall of Notes fan for sure. Although I love the fact that they say again, I can't remember what is this is stuff I know, and I, I this is the point I'm at, Jason. I'm at the point now where I can't remember if it's something I know or it's something I've heard from you and D. <laughs> That's where I am in my life now. But um, I know that they've so, never ever been billed as Hall of Notes. People call them Hall of Notes, but they're like, nope, they were Daryl Hall, John Oates. Sometimes there's an truth. and. Sometimes there's an and. But it's just Daryl Hall, John Oates. Interesting. This, they had, aside this from this song, they had five other number ones, mm-hmm. but none of them stayed at number one as long as this did, which was four weeks. That's I wouldn't have thought that. I know. I would not have ever. There was a could. time when Hall and Oates ruled the world, man. 1982, mm-hmm. I mean, they were on fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of pre-thriller, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and mm-hmm. then they came back with the Big Bang Boom, and then they had their Rock and Soul Part 1, and those two albums were both huge. And yep. all over yeah. MTV. Yeah. 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 Th- this Bunch one came of off of H2O, I think. Yeah. Yeah. That is correct. All right. By the way, I'm going to call an audible, guys. We're going to get to number two and do that, and we'll do our honorable mentions, and then let's do our albums, and we'll save the number one song 
for the very, very okay. end. All right, let's do that. Right. Let's save our number one song for the very end. Sure. I'll probably forget that, so let's try to remember. All right, I'm going to let Hall Notes, although they're not called that, fade off in the distance here. And <laughs> let's see. It is up to me for number three. So, oh, yeah. This is an album that I really didn't appreciate back in the day. And they were never my favorite group back in the day. But over the last 15 years or so, they've moved steadily. I mean, there has not been a bigger mover on my favorite music groups list at all than this group over the last 15 years. Uh, just ask my daughter. She hates them because I play it all the time, this kind of stuff all the time. Um, you know, back in, the, back in the 80s, what I played all the time was Def Leppard and Journey... And the police, those were probably the big, and Led Zeppelin. Those were like the four bands I played all the, and then Pink Floyd a little bit, and then, and then a lot of heavy metal, okay. But this band kind of like emerged uh, in the 80s, huge, but I was never a huge fan, but I am now. And they've gotten all the way up into probably my top two or three bands, honestly. And I didn't realize that this album came out in 83 with everything else. I mean, it, for me, it just got totally crowded out by everything else that was going on that year. And, I, and it, for me, I look back on it as, oh, yeah, that was that, was that year, too. And so, I mean, I really organized this thing so poorly. Uh, here it is. Uh, my uh, number three overall is from a little band from uh, Dublin City, Ireland. And I probably play the War album almost as much as I play um, The Unforgettable Fire. Those are the two for me. Joshua Tree is fine, but I was off in college and it was on the radio all the time. I kind of got... I kind of got... Uh, Phil Collins with the Joshua Tree and by that I mean it's on all the freaking time right you get sick of it but War and uh, Unforgettable Fire man so New Year's Day and of course every New Year it's kind of like 1999 every New Year's Day this song comes to mind I play it all day so there you go it's a good one yeah, alright um, I didn't really discover you two until Joshua Tree I may have, you know, I heard them or whatever, but that's when I jumped on board. Um, by Joshua Tree, I was listening to Run DMC, so I never, I never, <laughs> I never jumped on the, the YouTube band, bandwagon. Oh, now I understand why my my list was so mixed up. It's because I have '83 and '84 on here, so <laughs> I'm stupid. All right, we'll slide Bono and the gang on down. They're fascinating to me though because they. Um, Barely played their instruments when they got together. My daughter would say they still don't. Um, but uh, really, it was, I think, the, the sheer raw talent of The Edge playing guitar. He's by far the most talented member of that group. And then the charisma, the personality of Bono, the, those two things together made them, you know, that plus, like, him, uh, Bono climbing all over the stage at, at Live Aid in one yeah. of the two greatest performances of Live Aid, I think, that and Queen, obviously. So, yeah. That it's like really having did. a great point guard and a great center. You, you can kind of fill in the rest and be, be okay, you know. 100%. That is a great analogy, Jason. All right, that was my 
number three. Now we're going to zip all the way back up to the top to Jason for your number two. Where to the last row before we're going to take a break. All right, number two. Okay, number two. On this song, you have keyboards by Thomas Dolby of She Blinded Me With Science fame. Uh, a lot of people think this song is about Marilyn Monroe, but it's actually not. That didn't come along until the video popped up. This was huge in my fifth grade class, and you have the first MTV Spread Eagle <laughs> by Mr. Joe Elliott. This is Photograph by Def Leppard. <laughs> oh, yes. I gotta let this play for a second. <laughs> Oh, man. I had the black T-shirt with the uh, the Mercury building getting blown up with the sniper oh, yeah. scope. I had that shirt. I think I have it on in my driver's license photo from January of 84. <laughs> You're going to love this. Oh, you'll love this. My, my driver's license, January 1984, my first driver's license, I had on the black Def Leppard album cover T-shirt with a sort of a garnet members only jacket over it oh, oh yeah i mean were you, were you rock were you rocking the mullet oh I, it was the 80s and i'm from alabama man what do you think <laughs> i could i could grow hair then so yeah it was oh, it was man. glorious i look like that i look like bono in i look like bono at live aid <laughs> the super mullet man that DMV photo exists somewhere. Um, oh, yeah. Oh, I've it. still got my driver's Believe it or not, I've still got that driver's license. Post that picture. I, have to, <laughs> I will. That's right. Every now, and, every now and then, my daughter gets those all my old pictures, like my old IDs out, and just laughs and laughs and puts them back away. <laughs> she just gets them out to laugh at and then puts them away again. So. But you know what's funny is that she loves Def Leppard, too, and she's got a Def Leppard T-shirt, too, just like that. So <laughs> she can't say anything. My daughter has one, too. She has oh, a Pyromania shirt. That's so awesome. That's so awesome. I love it. All right. Great so that song. Was, yeah, I love this one. That's your number two. Yep. David, you have a number two as well. My number two song entered the charts four different times. <laughs> 1982, 1983, 1999, and 2016. And we've already talked about it. It's 1999 by Prince. Uh, I love this song. This was my introduction to Prince, and I was all about it when it was new. I could not quit listening to it. And uh, it may still be my favorite Prince song, even after everything that came after this. I so. like that you both have Prince songs from this year, and neither one of them is Little Red Corvette. That's no, I love 99 much better Red Corvette. I, mean, I like Red Corvette too, but 99 is an easy winner. I agree with you. All right, let me ask you then. Jason, what's your favorite Prince song? Uh, we'll talk about it in our next 1984 right. episode. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, I can say, David, can you say without messing anything up, what's your favorite Prince I cannot. Song? Okay. Nope. Well, see, this is interesting. My favorite Prince song is not on 1999, it's not on Purple Rain, and it's not on uh, Raspberry Gray, whatever. Whatever. Yeah. My favorite Prince song is Mountains from the Under the Cherry Moon soundtrack. 
I love I that love song. I love that song. I love that song. It's totally underrated and it's absolutely the best thing that came out of Under the Cherry Moon. Yes. And that's a low bar, but okay. <laughs> it is a, that's fair. That is fair. That's fair. It is a low bar, but it is so good. I love the video where they're like but, floating around in the clouds and stuff. But if you're saying it's the best print song, that's a high bar. So uh, yeah, I guess I'll no, check that one out. There's a difference between the best and my favorite. I've always maintained that. I will always say something is my favorite, even if I think it's the best or not. I don't know what is best. There may be another couple of songs that are his best, but that's my favorite. So, all so right. For, 19, for 1999, VH1 played it continuously from midnight of New Year's Eve 1998 to midnight New Year's Day 1999. Why did it chart but again to, later? Uh, it charted in 2016 when Prince died. Oh, okay. Yeah. I, I was a lot of the songs the... charted again then. I was but, so uh, man. I was so. But to me, to me, it's the following year that you should have played it at midnight, '99, going into 2000, because of the lyrics of the song. But anyway, there you go, mm -hmm. 1999. I love it. And then, right. like I said, you know, the uh, it, the this, the lyrics kind of freaked me out. You know, we were we were <laughs> hearing rumors about nuclear war every day, and then he was, was singing true. a song about running around or a purple sky and on Judgment Day. I was like, this is. <laughs> Terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You're right, though. They always play it at the beginning of 1999 when it's clearly about the end of 1999. That's, right. that is an <laughs> that's annoying. I, I never really I guess right. I thought about it, but yeah. He should have named it Y2K, you know? That's <laughs> <laughs> exactly. All right. My number two song, and then we're going to pause. We're going to do honorable mentions, and we're going to talk about our five favorite albums each, and we'll come around and do our number one favorite song at the end. So... My number two favorite song of 1983 came from the band that probably was fighting with Def Leppard to be my favorite band of all back then. Well, again, Led Zeppelin was always in the background because my brother had always played them. But of current bands, right, of current bands that year putting out stuff, um, this is... Uh, uh, actually, the guitar player from this band is going to be playing here in our area by himself in a couple of months and I'm really debating if I want to go see him by himself. This is a guitar player that almost became the new guitar player for the Rolling Stones back in the late 70s uh, but ended up getting beat out by Ron Wood and if you get beat out by Ron Wood I'm like eh, come on. But he <laughs> plays the guitar and I think you guys will agree with me he plays it differently than anybody else I've ever heard. I mean I think that there's two guitar players that sound completely different from every guitar player ever lived. The Edge, completely different from everybody else, and Andy Summers. Right? And I don't know what exactly he's doing with the guitar, Andy Summers, but the police sound different from every other band. They're a strange combination of pop, power pop, reggae, punk, uh, and then you have the sophistication of Sting's lyrics and intellectualism. You have the power of Stuart Copeland and his arrangements and everything to oil and water those two, right? Trying to murder each other. And then, and then you have Andy Summers with this sort of alchemy, this magical sorceress guitar that never sounded like a guitar. It sounded like a keyboard to me. Yeah. And when you put all that together, you get a song like Synchronicity 2, <laughs> Which is my favorite uh, police song, I think, probably. Because it's just a rocker. It's, it's a rocker. I love that you brought this one up because uh, every breath we take always just you know, tsunamis everything else. But Synchronicity 2 is such a great, it's like a, a, it's a rock song, you know? 
It is. It is a rock song. Yeah. Oh, there's. You can't. You can't take anything away from every breath you take. The only thing I'll say about it again, it's another. I use the verb Phil Collins, right? It's one of those you just hear all the time, and it, I'm kind of done with it at, at some point. I love that it was written, and I think you guys talked about it on your show. It was written at the desk in uh, Goldeneye. And uh, we have, you know, on the back cover of Alan Porter's Bond Lexicon is a picture of him and his wife sitting at that chair next to the song on the wall at the desk, which is pretty cool. But um, incredible. What blew me away listening to the Shirley Can't Be Serious podcast talking about this song. Yes. Was that it continues to pay all of Sting's bills. Like he makes that's like a third of his income today is still off this one song. Not this song, though. No, we're right. We're talking about every breath. Every breath you take. Yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's incredible. It brings him like, what, $1,000 a day or some ridiculous or minute or something crazy? Yeah. And and in the year of Michael Jackson, Every Breath was the number one selling single of the year. That's, I think, more than anything else. It had to go up against the biggest album of all time, and it held its own. And this one song really kind of... Well, that one yep. song, but that's not the song I'm talking about. I'm talking about this one because I love the. And think about this, the um, the video for that song's black and white, but the video for this song really emphasizes color. It has they're each wearing a different color, like the album cover, red, blue, and yellow. This is really the synchronicity song that they released off of the synchronicity album. The one about the colors and them doing different things. You got all the weird stuff going on with the Loch Ness monster in the middle of it and everything. Right. There's so much cool so stuff weird, here. Yeah. So much imagery. Yeah, it's really fantastic. All right, so that was my number two song. Let me slide the police on down off the bottom. Now, so now uh, we won't play the music for them. Let's just run through them really quickly. Jason, you give us your honorable mentions, the songs that didn't quite make your top five from 1983. Okay, so my two honorable mentions... You want me to go back to back honorable mention on? Yeah, just go ahead and do yours, and then we'll and then we'll do Dave, okay. and then we'll do it. So Dave's already brought this one up. Uh, there is a musical playing device in the middle of the Nabib Desert playing this on loop again and again and again and again. It's solar powered, and uh, David Crazy. Page said God Almighty gave this to him. Like he downloaded it straight from God, and once again the video looks like Indiana Jones trying to get laid. This song <laughs> is Africa by Toto. Yes, yes, and then. Yep. My second one, you talked about Phil Collins just a minute ago, and from 1980 until 1989, maybe even more than Michael Jackson, mm-hmm. Phil Collins was a part of our life. Like he just put, you know, it was Phil Collins and Genesis, then Phil Collins and Genesis, and then just hit and hit and hit and hit. Um, so my honorable mention with that said, I just love the song "That's All" by Genesis. It's one of those songs that when it comes on the radio, you just almost everybody I meet can just subconsciously just kind of sing it even though they don't especially like the song mm-hmm. uh, and so i just i love it just great song yeah it is crazy that he had a completely giant solo career and a completely giant career with a with a separate band completely and he was also touring with robert plant just playing the drums in robert plant's band at the same time so he's with three completely different huge bands it's unbelievable and of course, he famously took the Concord from London to Philadelphia to play to, at both venues of Live Aid on the same day. <laughs> and I believe that's how was it Cher that popped up at the end of Live Aid, and people were like, "What is Cher doing here?" 
she was on the Concord and he's sitting there next to her and she's like, oh, where are you going, Phil? And he says, oh, I'm going to go to Live Aid. She's like, oh, what's that? And he's like, well, come with me. And he just dragged her with him. And so she ended up singing at the end of Live Aid. Just out of the blue, wasn't even invited. Isn't that awesome? So that's awesome. Yeah, awesome. yeah. Phil Collins, man, Genesis, all that. No, no kidding. All right, David. And, what are, and was oh, in Miami Vice too? Don't forget that. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes, that's right. Uh, oh, David, yeah, that's you, you have uh, you have some honorable mentions as well. Well, I've got honorable mentions. The first one I'll say real quick is just every breath you take. We've already talked about it, and you were trashing it, so I got all my trivia in while you were talking about it. So I won't spend more time on it. But uh, you got to you got to you got to pay respect to the number one selling song of the year, and how it continues to just generate revenue for him is the his by far his most successful song. All right, my my next honorable mention was uh was a hit off of this person's solo debut. After spending the previous decade in a group, and he wrote, and I did not like the song at the time. I didn't, I wasn't aware of it. I don't think, but I've learned, I've discovered it, and have fallen in love with it. You would think Maybe this is Phil Collins again, right? This sounds like <laughs> Phil Collins again, but it's, just, it's the, and it's the same situation. Well, it's the drummer. It's about. It's the drummer but again. <laughs> it's the drummer of the group from the previous decade. Yes. But, uh, what? So weird. Yes. That's so weird. So, but. This song is about something related to my career field. So that made me perk up and take notice. Yep. And it's a pretty scathing uh, uh, scolding of the media inspired by the intrusive press coverage of the deaths of John Belushi and Natalie Wood. And this is Dirty Laundry by Don Henley. Yep. And the, what I, I want to mention who plays on this track, because it might not surprise you to know that Timothy B. Schmidt and Joe Walsh can be heard playing on this track. That might not be too surprising, but guess who else? By the way, Don Henley did not play drums on this song. <laughs> if Don Felder plays on this song, I'll eat my shoes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Jeff Picaro played drums. All right. Steve Picaro played keyboards, and Steve Lukather had the second guitar solo. Joe Walsh had the first one. So you're hearing Toto and the Eagles on this song. Crazy. That's amazing, and 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 I love the lyrics. I love the verses. Uh, Dirty laundry. It's it's a uh, it's a recent discovery for me. I mean, you know, within the last oh, yeah. ten years. Oh so, yeah, I love that's, it. That's my honorable mention. Kick them it, up, kick them when they're down. <laughs> it has great lyrics. I I've always loved it. I love the whole uh, the idea of you don't have to look good. You just you don't have to. It, basically, it's saying you don't have to know what you're talking about. You just have to look good or whatever, or something like that. You just have to look good. You right. don't have to be classy. You don't. You just have to look good. You don't have to be clear. Right. That's right. Yeah. That's it. Okay. Yeah. And there's a bunch of other stuff in there. Right. Great. Great yeah. lyrics. Great song. I love it. Oh, all the he had a bunch of good. Um, he had so many good songs over the next several years. The there's the deadhead sticker on the phone book, man. Oh yeah, the deadhead <laughs> sticker on a Cadillac. The cruel summer. Uh, Boys of summer. Boys yeah. summer. Yeah. Boys and, summer. Um, yep. There's several. Yeah. Oh yeah. Okay. All uh, she wants to you, do is dance. Oh yes. All right, here is my honorable mentions for 1983. I got a few. So you mentioned that Down Under by Minute Work was was uh, on the charts at the beginning of 83. The weird thing is it was released as a single in 1981, and it did not chart until mid-1982. I believe it was charting in New Zealand and Australia, obviously, first. Then it charted in Europe. Then it came to the U.S. It made it to the U.S. Billboard chart and hit number one in January of 1983. So this is a song 
Down Under that was a number one song. It was on the charts for three separate years, which is crazy. It is a fun song. It was never my favorite Minute Work song, but I think it is pretty emblematic and probably their most popular song. Um, yes. I was going to say, it was when it hit number one, it stayed there for three weeks mm-hmm. and then was interrupted by Africa. Yeah. And then it returned to the number one spot after that. Oh, that's wow. crazy. I didn't, you don't hear that very often. Um, I also have to include David Bowie's Modern Love and China Girl. Big, big songs. Love them both. Uh, love Let's Dance, too. And, uh, but, but Modern Love, which I always thought was Church on Time. And then um, <laughs> I do have Little Red Corvette in 1999 by Prince. The other Minute Work song that year was from a different album, actually, and it's Overkill. It's just overkill. And then I got one more. I had a lot more than I thought I did. I got to mention this one. Brian Adams from his, um, and this was when I went back and rediscovered after Bre- after uh, Reckless came out, was Straight from the Heart. I really like Straight from the Heart. There's a lot of good songs on that album, too. All right. Now, let's talk about the albums, and then we'll, when we finish that, we're going to do the number one songs of 1983. So, Jason, we need your... Top five out. We'll just go ahead and do them five. So, what is your number five album? And we'll work our way down. Okay. So, my number five album had six singles from it, released October 14th, 1983. I could really make a case that this should be on 1984, but this was She's So Unusual by Cindy Lauper. Yeah. Girls Huge. Just Want to Have Fun, Time After Time, She Bop, All Through the Night, mm-hmm. Money Changes Everything, When You Were Mine. I mean, just. Those are all bangers, man. And you don't realize they're all on the same album. I would have thought there was across two or three different albums. It's like a greatest hits album. Yes, me. yes. All okay. right, Num- number four. Number four for me? Yeah, let's go ahead and bust out okay. the albums. Okay. So number four, released September 23rd, 1983. Made my parents really nervous because there's <laughs> pentagrams all over the place. Uh, but, I mean, I was just captured by Motley Crue, Shout Out the Devil, right? Dun, dun, ah, this is the type dun, of stuff. Dun, shout dun, dun. <laughs> Shout Out the Devil! There you go. I'd give you something. Hey, at least you weren't playing Dungeons and Dragons. <laughs> right, exactly. It's one of the two, uh, Mom. Yeah. So. That is a great, great album. album. I love uh, Too Young to Fall in Love. That's my favorite song on the album. Yeah. yeah, and and then what's the other one? There's another one on there, too, that's really big. Uh, uh, looks at the Kill. You yes, Looks at Kill. Skelter. Looks yeah. at kills. Yeah. Dun, 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 dun. That's great. Yeah, they're like the martial arts video that goes along with that one. <laughs> That's right. Where they're beating yep. up martial arts guys and stuff. Yeah. Like oh, I love that. I love that video. album. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, All right, number, number three. three. Released September 15th, 1983. Again, this could be in 1984 very easily. Singles were Heart and Soul, I Want a New Drug, Heart of Rock and Roll, If This Is It. I mean, Huey Lewis, Sports ruled the day except for a couple of albums i mean it was just one that everybody had in their in their library oh yeah they were called the ultimate party band i remember yeah great fun love the love all those songs number two for Mm -hmm. me released january of 83 let me go ahead and put my union jack t-shirt on for this one (laughs) uh but this one really changed the course of my life because this sent me down the hair metal trail Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, this branched me off of Michael Jackson and sent me towards hysteria, basically, you know, and Bon Jovi and Motley Crue. But uh, this is, of course, Pyromania by Def Leppard, number two. 
Love it. Absolutely yes, love it. And then number one, I mean, I don't know how you could possibly pick any other album except Thriller in 1983. Ben, I, 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 I don't know how you're going to make the case for it, but Thriller is clearly yes. the biggest album yes. of 1983 uh, it, and all time. It, yeah, I mean, it transcended music. It was one of the biggest pop culture nuclear bombs yeah. of the year. Everybody, I mean, it took over the world. It was, it was, uh, it was beyond it just, yeah, it, it truly was, did. It was above pop culture. Honorable mentions for me were An Innocent Man by Billy Joel and Synchronicity by The Police. I'm glad you mentioned Innocent Man because that is a really, really, really good, solid album. And it, and it was kind of like Billy Joel going from like the piano stuff to more pop, you know, and even doo-wop. And, right. And it was a, a lot of people don't realize this, but those each song on that album is a tribute to a song from the like the 50s. Mm. Right. So oh, it's a, a tribute to like yeah. Frankie Valley or the Supreme. Like tell her about it is a direct uh, homage to the Supremes. Every song. Yes. You know, Jerry Lee Lewis. There's a whole every song is a homage to something from his teenager years. And I probably like Allentown the best, but there's so many. If that was on there, was that on there or was it on the Island Curtain? Nope. That was on a different one. Yeah. Yep, that's right. Okay. Still that a great one had Uptown Girl, Uptown Girl. Tell Her About It and Yeah. yeah. The Longest that, Time, yeah. Innocent longest Man. Time. Yeah. Great, great album. I'm glad that you mentioned it. All right, David, you got to tell us your um We did your number one, didn't we, Jason? Yes, thriller. My yes, number thriller. one yeah. song. No, your number one album. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sorry, David. Your albums. All right. So as I was compiling this list, I I came to realize that I was not a big consumer of albums. I don't know if I bought albums in 83 and 84, except for one, which I'll get to, uh, because I was American (laughs) breathing oxygen in 1983. It was an album that I bought. (laughs) But uh, but, so what I'm looking at is where what albums do I see here from this year that have at least three songs on it that were big hits for me that I personally liked. So um, I had to, I had to like dig deep a little bit, but for number five, I have Eliminator by ZZ Top. Okay. Yeah. It's give me all your loving TV dinners, sharp dress, man, and legs. Yes. That they, one's gotta be mentioned. This, yes. Right. I mean, that broke them out to the mainstream, right? They'd been around for a while, but this put them on MTV, got them in front of a whole new generation. This is where people our age found out who ZZ Top were. And uh, I, you know, I love their sound. So, uh, so number four, um, Kilroy was here. I'm just kind of, I guess I'm kind of a sucker for the, for the sci-fi concept album. I, I just think that's pretty cool. Um, if you look at the album cover with the two robot masks on it, um, those were designed and built by Stan Winston, oh. who did the really? creature effects for Jurassic Park, Terminator, Aliens. That's, yeah. that's a Stan Winston album cover right now. Nice. So. Uh, the other two, uh, well, the rest of my list has already been mentioned. An Innocent Man, which I just discovered by listening to the Shirley Can't Be Serious podcast. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Uh, and it, people that know me really well know that I have two things. I have rap from the 80s, and I have <laughs> Beach Boys or rock from the 60s. I love 50s and 60s. love that throwback, doo-wop, all the vocal-driven stuff. And, um, and I knew the singles, right? Uptown Girl, Longest Time, Tell Her About It. I knew those. 
but I didn't know the album cuts, so I listened to uh, Surely Can't Be Serious. And man, I just opened my eyes to the whole album. I mean, I love the whole album, top to bottom. Uh, and I love the throwback kind of vibe to it all and how every song is a tribute to somebody else from the past. And there's a variety of styles there. It's just tons of fun. Um, love, I love that album, man. And I just learned that like this year. So that's pretty cool. Um, so number two, Synchronicity. Um, you know, that was a monster album from 1983. Oh, yeah. uh, I, I think we've talked about several of the songs. I, I don't think we've mentioned Wrapped Around Your Finger or King of Pain yet, yes. but those were on that album also. Even and, Synchronicity um, 1 was great. Yeah. Very yeah. underrated. And uh, and it was stayed on top, you know, number one album for a long time. It held its own nicely against Thriller in 1983. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, their career-defining album. All right, so number one drum roll is thriller um nine tracks seven of them were top 10 single seven of them were singles they all hit the top 10 right i don't care what you say i still like the other two tracks also uh, <laughs> uh it it's uh let me see it 32 million sold by the end of 83 it's now sold over 70 million this was more than just music this took over the country this was just as much a part of 1983 as like star wars toys and pac-man fever uh so if if uh you know in 1983 i was yeah so this i mean it absolutely took over the world it got like eight grammys it got eight amas it's in the grammy hall of fame it's in the library of congress for being culturally and historically significant it's now sold over 70 million copies. It, it remains the number one selling non-compilation album of all time. Uh, so it, it, there's, it's hard to describe how much of a cultural force this album was to someone who didn't live through it. Because this, this went beyond music and this went beyond pop culture. Everybody in the world knew who Michael Jackson was and knew about Thriller. It was, it was in 1983, you know, I'd get out of school, the bell would ring, I'd jump on my Schwinn or my mongoose, you know, pedal home before parents got home, made me do homework, grab my pitfall cartridge, stick it in the 2600, and then drop the needle on the Thriller album, and that's how I would spend my afternoon. Uh, if there was, if there, I know that I had this album, and I had it on vinyl, I actually had it on cassette. The very first album I ever bought with my own money yeah. was this a cassette copy of this that I went to Kmart and bought with my allowance money. Uh, listen, wore this album out, and I know that I'm not alone in that. Let me ask you a question. I This is how I remember it. Correct me if I'm wrong. I The way I remember it, one of the reasons it was so big and sold so well was that it was like Billie Jean and Beat It came out fairly close together, and then there may have been another song or two, and then it felt like a lot of time passed, and then Thriller, the song, came out on MTV as like this little mini movie, and it was a big event, and it was honestly like a whole new album had come out, and a whole nother millions of people ran out and bought it like it was a new album. You know what I mean? It's like it was a whole. It was like two albums put together, and they released half of it, and then the other half. I know it didn't go that way, but that's the way it felt. And so it just seemed yeah. like it got a whole other lease on life just a few months later. Yeah, it really was the seventh single release. It was the last one. Yeah, yeah. They didn't want to. They didn't want to do it, I and mean, they didn't think it would be single material until they made the movie. In fact, well, um, they sold a jillion copies. Why do we need to make a, a two million dollar video right. when we've sold yeah. a billion trillion copies? So, 
Yeah, but Van, you're exactly right. And and the album charts reflect it. Like it came back to the charts, and then it stayed at number one through like a third of 1984. A th- thriller matches up contemporarily with both the 1999 album and the Purple Rain album. He was competing with one <laughs> on the front end, competing with the other on the back end. Like Jeez, the, the album, the uh, the album that was dominating the charts before Thriller was was down was uh, was was minute work. Yeah. Uh, business as usual. Business okay. Usual. By the time Thriller was done, you're looking at Footloose. I mean, you're, it's a it's a it's a whole different <laughs> era. That's incredible, it's, man. It's the only and... album. It's the only album to ever finish number one in the United States for two years. Yeah. No one's ever done that. Well, Amazing. before it, MTV was very white, and as soon as it was over, yes. MTV was very diverse, and that and it's yes. they owe him as much as anybody. I mean, Prince helped too, and, and many others, but that was the one, right? That was the one that planted the yes. flag and said, "Well, yeah. it's for everybody." Yes, yeah, amen. He, he bust through that, and they had CBS had to fight for that, but yeah, yeah. All right, your honorable mentions from '83. For me, I uh, only got one. Uh, this is a Def Dave answer, so this is kind of a retro pick. But it is the soundtrack to the 1982 movie, Wild Style. Soundtrack came out in 83. Um, this is, of course, pre-Run DMC. This is like a look at that nation era of, of hip-hop recording in the early 80s. Um, you got people like the Cold Crush Brothers, Grandmaster Kaz, Grand Wizard, Theodore. Of all the hip-hop breakdance movies that came out in the early 80s, Wild Style was the one that was the most real. It kind of blurred the lines between documentary and fictional narrative, and it was using real people in playing themselves. They could tell they weren't actors, but you had, like, real, like, underground graffiti artists, you know, and they were, like, shooting this all guerrilla style. So it uh, it was a real accurate depiction of this new hip-hop culture of the early 80s. And this album is a is is a perfect representation of where that genre was. You know, it had developed through the '70s in the clubs. They had started recording, making recordings right at the turn of the decade, and that era there between that between the turn of the decade and Run DMC coming on the scene was this was was this era that Wild Style captures perfectly. So, uh, for anyone interested in that, uh, check out the soundtrack. I I take your word for it. <laughs> all right very cool very good i'm yeah, glad we get different kinds of stuff in here too my top five quickly my top five albums of 1983 number five we've talked about business as usual for a minute work but their album that came out in 1983 was cargo and cargo had uh overkill and um it's a mistake and several other really really good songs it's not quite as good as business as usual but i really like cargo a whole lot and i played it a lot on the uh on the old tape deck so that's number five number four I mentioned U2 and War was my was the big album from this year. It's not my favorite U2 album, but it's pretty close. And of course, I, I, I mentioned New Year's Day. It's also got uh, famously Sunday Bloody Sunday and several other really good songs on it, uh, including 40. I really love 40. The story, you know, the story of where 40 came from. It's the song. It's it's um, they needed one more song, I think, for for the album. And Bono just went and picked up a Bible and opened it to a certain to a random page and read a little bit, and then just kind of wrote the lyrics out while Clayton was doing the doom da da doom da doom doom da doom like that. And it's the only song when they play they usually they used to end with it, and it was a song that they would switch instruments. So Adam Clayton uh, would play the guitar on it, and Edge would play the bass on it. 
and then they would, and that was oh, the last cool. thing they would play before they, and they'd just keep playing, and then they'd leave the stage and just Larry Mullen be up there playing the drums bit while the crowd kept singing it, and then he'd stop, and the crowd would keep singing it and singing it until they decided to go home. So I really like that. Oh, that's, that's awesome. Forty pretty that. cool. Um, number three is Frontiers by Journey. That one's got to be up there. Uh, probably the third most played song of mine that year. Number two, Synchronicity by The Police. Love that whole album, even the really weird songs like Tea in the Sahara. And Now, you talked to... I loved your show about it, Jason. I got to admit, Mother... Huh? Mother... <laughs> that's a weird song. I... That was okay. the one they... Wasn't that one they threw a bone to, to Copeland or something? Or Andy Summers? To, to, Andy Summers. To do one song, and they're like... Sting, Sting was like, I'll play this one time. Yeah, that's it. That's so funny. And that's one time more than they probably should have, but that's okay. It, at least it got him a song on there. And it really I does show... I thought you were getting ready to say how much you liked it. Oh, no, no. I'm saying I, it, it really does uh, reinforce the idea they probably should just let Sting write all the songs. And I know they couldn't stand... Their egos wouldn't let them do that. And I understand right. that. But they, they needed to know their roles, and they just never did. And that's why they broke up. Um, um, my number one album of the year... Is Pyromania by Def Leppard. It's just from start to finish, every song on it is awesome. And for a while there, it looked like it would be their big breakout. It, it looked like it's, it's kind of funny. It it and Synchronicity were out at the same time, and they were both both al- both bands' biggest albums to that point. And the Police reached that point and imploded. Right. And it looked like outside forces were going to do that to Def Leppard too, right? It, it, I would not have been surprised if, if Pyromania had been their last album because between all the substance abuse problems that Steve Clark had, between Rick Allen losing his freaking arm, uh, the you know, when, when Hysteria finally came out, the liner notes had a picture of them playing, a, playing a, a, a festival and it was pouring down rain and it said, the caption's like, pretty much what our last four years have been like right there, you know, <laughs> and that's, that's about right. So I would not have been surprised if Pyromania had been the synchronicity of Def Leppard, but it wasn't. And then that makes me happy that they actually have two huge albums and not just one, and that's really, really cool. My honorable mention, Eliminator by ZZ Top, we talked about a little bit. Um, and honestly, I think they're the same way. They imploded after Eliminator. It's just that they kept making albums, but just nobody cared anymore. <laughs> I know that their next one was big, but their next one was all synthesizers, and I don't like it. They're, if you listen to the album after Eliminator, I don't know what it was called. It uh, sounds like, I think, right? it, yeah, it sounds like they asked artificial intelligence to do a ZZ Top album. Oh man, I'm gonna defend it, but. Well, that's for another day. <laughs> okay, I just don't like it. at least Eliminator sounds like a band in a in a venue playing their instruments, whereas that song to me just sounds too computerized. That's all I'm saying. It just sounds a little too digital for me. Okay, it does. Cause, yeah, cause I can see that. They need to be a roadhouse band, not a synthesizer band, and it just bugs me. Okay, because I saw them in concert for that tour, and I was like, eh, "This is not what you're supposed to sound like." Um, but then I like TV dinners better than anything on Afterburner. Uh, my honorable mention is just one is the principle of Mo- uh, besides that one is the principle of moments by Robert Plant because uh, this is when he really established that he could be a solo act. The first that he had an album before this that was okay, but this is the one that had Big Log on it that was so cool. They played it on MTV all the time, and this is the one where Phil Collins played the drums, basically uncredited. He just said, "Yeah, I'll play drums in your band," and he went around with him playing the wow. drums, and nobody ever knew. Oh, that's Phil Collins back there, you know. He never just <laughs> broke into Sue Studio or anything, you know. He just played the drums. So, 
So that's pretty cool. So, all right. I think it's time to wrap things up with our number one song of 1983. So, Jason, tell us what is the number one song of 1983. And I got to get the audio back up here. Okay. So, my number one song of 1983, released on Valentine's Day of 1983. This was this album's third single. You had Steve Lukather on guitar. You had Steve Picoro uh, on the drums. You had Jeff Picoro on the keys. You had David Page playing the keys. And you had Eddie freaking Van Halen playing a guitar solo that literally belted the speakers when he turned it in. It is absolutely the number one song of 1983. It is Beat It by Michael Jackson. Yeah, that guitar solo. He did two takes for two packs of beer. Two six packs of beer. <laughs> That's what he got paid. Oh, but and the publicity. Thriller blocked 1984. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, right. the, the right. good side of it is incredible publicity for Van Halen. The downside is they never got to number one. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I can make a case that it's the downfall of Van Halen. Like, David Lee Roth was so upset about it they just could never get past it he was always upset about everything you're a guitar hero man nobody wants to see you play keyboard is it true that he had to do two takes because the first time he literally caught the speakers on fire that is true that is true (laughs) oh wow and there's one other story about this song the video is that the street gangs that dance in it were actual street gangs, right? And they were going to, like, fight and stuff, and Michael Jackson walks out, and they just immediately quit fighting, and they're just like, whatever you want to do, Mr. Jackson, yes. Because <laughs> he was, that was that, that charisma, you know, that uh, yeah. his presence was enough that they put all that Crips and Blood stuff aside and just did their little dance, you know, and that's incredible. Uh- I remember MTV teasing the premiere of this video. They built up, built it up a lot, and I went. I didn't have MTV. My friend did. I spent the night at his house. We stayed up late. We to see the premiere of this video, and uh, we we just we were pumped and primed and fell in love with it on the first airing. Yeah, it's something. And then of course, you know, Weird Al gets a hold of it later. But that's a whole other story. <laughs> and, um... and he, he he did a rock song on purpose because of the death of disco and off the wall had been so disco oriented that he he's like, we got to have a rock song on my next album, and and they ended up with Beat It. So, David, yeah, tell modeled us modeled after oh. My Sharona by The Knack. Huh? Oh yeah, that's tricky. I can kind of now that you say that. Yeah, I can kind of see that. Okay, or hear it, I guess. All right, David, was the number one song of 1983? So, so my number one song was released on January 2nd, 1983. It was number one for seven weeks. And then there was a Motown 25 special that aired in May where an iconic performance of Billie Jean yep. took the nation by storm. It, the song had actually was at the tail end of its radio run or at the tail end of its run at number one. And, uh, but... Everybody saw this show. It came on. I remember it very well. The original airing, I was in sixth grade. Uh, introduced the moonwalk, right? Not just the moonwalk, but everything about this song of how he would perform it for the rest of his life. The sequin black jacket, the fedora, the choreography all came from this TV special, which he worked out alone uh, at his house the night before the recording, before the taping. Um, this song was uh let me see it was number one for seven weeks okay it finally hit 
It, on February 26, it was it was number four on the charts. It had Baby Come to Me at number one, Shame on the Moon by Bob Seger, and Stray Cat Strut were the three songs ahead of it. The very next week, it had jumped all the way to number one, leapfrogging Shame on the Moon and Stray Cat Strut, which would never see the top spot. It yep. stayed there uh-huh. for seven weeks, and right around the time of Motown 25 airing, it finally fell out of number one for Come On Eileen. Which held the spot for one single week before it was taken over by Beat It. So you had Billie Jean and Beat It, just one-two punch right there in the middle of the year. Uh, it was an unstoppable force. All right, I have uh, one. Quincy Jones and and Michael Jackson fought over this song uh, because Quincy hated the long intro. It goes on for like 30 seconds. He's like, this this is killing our song. We got to get to the rest of the song. He he didn't he fought against that, but Michael looked at him and said, "It makes me want to dance." And Quincy said, "If Michael Jackson tells you it makes him want to dance, you <laughs> need to shut up and get out of the way. <laughs> Leave it alone." <laughs> I have one note about it, and that'll be it. It was not the moonwalk. Everybody right. called it the moonwalk, and it became the moonwalk. But it's the glide. Moonwalk right. is completely different, but nobody seemed to understand that, and so yeah. he just went with it. There you go. <laughs> I'll, I'll always pick this song. The 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 video fascinated me. I thought it was just magical. It kind of it kind of created a magical persona around yeah. Michael, you know, with the light up sidewalk as he as he walked around and the surreal backdrop, I, and the and the way they edited that with the freeze frames and the multi panels. I just thought all of that was just amazing. If there's one song that I would pick to represent the entire decade, it would be Billie Jean. And so, for that reason, it will always be my number one from 1983. There you go. All right. Well, that gets me down to my number one. And here's a little shocking thing. It will not be from Michael Jackson. (laughs) It's not a Michael Jackson song. But it is one that we've heard before from, I think, maybe at least one of you, if not both. Uh, And that is the other... We had Foolin'. And now... There it is. My favorite song from my favorite album in 1983. Could be called Passion Killer, in parentheses. Passion Killer. Photograph. And we've talked about it a good bit, so I'll slide that one in there. All right. I, I'm, si- I'm sensing a Def Leppard bias on this show. The, the, the songs get played a little bit louder and a little bit longer. <laughs> I, hey, I no played problem. Michael Jackson for three solid minutes just now <laughs> on just one song. Come on, man. You're getting 40 I seconds of the of generation, no doubt about it. Yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it. We'll wrap up there. Um, any final thoughts, Jason, about those about 1983 in music? No, it's just, uh, I don't think it's quite the best year in music. I think that's 1984, which is coming up. But certainly 1983 was a iconic year for music in America. Loved it and had a great time with this episode. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, awesome. So glad you're here. Uh, David, final thoughts about 1983? Well, uh, with anything like this, it's really impossible to pick only six or seven songs and feel like you've been fair to everybody. Uh, what I love about this era of music is the totality of it. Like, I immerse myself in all the songs from the year. So I, that's why I made my playlist on Spotify. And when I want to listen to 1983 music, I play that because it takes me through the order in which they were popular. 
and really I can name 30 honorable mentions because it's oh, just yeah. it's just immersing yourself in it and hearing all the songs from that same time period that really kind of brings back the nostalgia of that year. So uh, I just, uh, you know, love 80s pop culture, love early 80s pop. Yep. That's it. Yeah, I think that um, I like the diversity of it all. We've gone from Michael Jackson and Prince to Def Leppard, The Police, U2 and Journey and... Um, and wild style all that yeah of course that we want to forget them of course i don't know who they are but sure okay so that's been fun all right so that was 1983 you guys we're going to do a companion episode we're going to roll right on into it now and you guys can check it out i guess in probably a week's time we're going to look at 1984 so all right guys we'll talk to you soon with 1984 Quality base here. The Eagle has landed. This has been a White Rocket Entertainment Production.